who are studying our way through the book of Genesis, and our focus recently has been primarily on the man known to Christians as the father of faith, Abraham. And the main theme of Abraham's story is his growing relationship with God, which is revealed in him trusting God with bigger and bigger things, taking bigger and bigger faith steps, facing bigger and bigger faith tests. It's the same work that God desires to do in your life and in mine, the growing of our faith. That is God's goal and desire for us. And the last two major tests that we saw Abraham walk through were trusting God to take care of his illegitimate son, Ishmael, when the time came for them to part ways. And then just last week, we saw him trusting God with his son, Isaac, his only begotten son, when God gave him the disturbing command to sacrifice his son to the Lord. Spoiler alert on that one, God didn't actually ask Abraham to go through with it. There's a whole lot more going on there than first appears, and we studied that as I mentioned last week. If you missed it, I encourage you to listen or watch it online. It's one of the most important studies that any Christian can do, come to a real understanding of Genesis 22. Well, after trusting God with both Ishmael and Isaac, Abraham will now face his next, and I want to suggest greatest test, actually. I know I hyped it up last week, but I did that so that I could surprise you this week and suggest to you that this might be an even greater test. Abraham will have to deal with trusting God as he deals with letting go of his wife. And it's not usually viewed that way, but I want to suggest this might be his greatest test thus far. You know, I remember when I took Rick out for breakfast to ask if I could marry Charlene, and I was a reasonably well-intentioned 19-year-old at the time. And, uh, and he was very gracious, uh, sharing with me that while the love of a parent for a child is great, he knew and understood that it did not compare to the love that one spouse has for another. And I smiled and nodded and pretended to understand, even though there's no way in the world I possibly could. Uh, so that's a yes? Okay, cool, we're good. But today, after 15 years of marriage, 16 next week, and six kids, I, I can tell you with honesty that I, I understand, I understand. Losing a, a child is devastating, is devastating. And we probably all know someone that that has unfortunately happened to. But if the couple loves the Lord, they can find comfort in each other. They can walk through the darkness of that valley together. Losing a spouse is different because the one who would normally comfort you, the one that you would normally confide in, the one that you would normally grieve with is the one that you've lost. And at that time when you most need your spouse to lean on, they're not there. It can challenge what a person believes about the fundamental goodness of God. It can derail a person's life purpose. The loss of a spouse is the greatest faith test, the greatest faith challenge that most believers will ever face in their life. And yet it happens all the time. All the time. I remember while uh, pastoring at church in Florida before we moved back up here, I had a, a couple one Sunday come up to me just crying. The, the wife is just, just weeping, and, and I just preached that Sunday, and they were just devastated 
because her 88-year-old father had died from old age despite the fact that they had prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and she was saying, you know, how, how could this happen, Jeff? And I didn't say it. I, I had better sense, but I really did think at the time, you guys understand this happens a lot, right? This happens a lot, like 100% of the time. This happens a lot. In fact, scientists and statisticians tell us that of all the people born in the 1800s, only a handful are still alive. Shocking statistic. And scientists expect that soon they too will die. In fact, until the rapture happens, everyone is destined to have an end to their earthly life. And so dealing with the loss of a loved one is something that we're going to have to do and that we're going to have to help others walk through as well. That's why I'm so, so grateful for some of the practical bits of wisdom on this subject that are tucked away here in Genesis 23, which if you read quickly, you can find yourself thinking, that, that's weird. A whole chapter to the death and burial of Sarah? What's the point? Well, there's a lot in here to be gleaned about dealing with the death of a loved one. Not an easy subject, but certainly an important one. So let's jump in. Verse 1, it says, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And so just to give you an idea of time, if Sarah died at 127, Isaac would have been around 37 years old when she died. And this happened relatively soon after the events on Mount Moriah, the events of chapter 22, where Abraham was asked by the Lord to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice. And the last verse of chapter 24 is going to let us know that this here in chapter 23 is fairly close to, relatively close to the whole sacrifice incident on Mount Moriah, which is why, as we mentioned last time, I believe along with many other Bible scholars that Isaac was likely the same age that Jesus was when he went to the cross, 33 years old. Verse 2, so Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, underline Hebron, in the land of Canaan, and Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Hebron means association or, or fellowship. Literally, Sarah died in the place of fellowship the place of fellowship with her husband. And, and sure, they had difficulties and trials. That tends to happen when you're one human being married to another. But, but they stuck with it. And, and she was Abraham's greatest earthly treasure. And so she died in fellowship with her husband in Hebron. But more importantly, Sarah died in fellowship with the Lord. You know, it's a great thing. A great thing when a person dies in fellowship with the Lord. And you don't have to wonder about their eternal situation. And Abraham had the comfort of knowing that his wife died in fellowship with the Lord. And so she was now with the Lord. And some Christians, some churches take this idea to such an extreme that, that things like grieving and, and crying around the time of death or even at a funeral are, are frowned upon. Because, I mean, after all, if they're with the Lord, then what's there to be sad about? I've certainly been in events like that where 
you can tell that those who are grieving almost feel like they have to defend their behavior, saying, well, I'm weeping tears of joy because there can be this unspoken idea in some circles of Christianity that it's not really appropriate for you to be grieving if you actually understand that they're with the Lord. And yet, here in Genesis 23, we have Abraham, the father of what? Faith. The father of faith, mourning and weeping over the earthly loss of his wife. This is a man who the book of Hebrews tells us understood eternity so clearly that he never even felt the need to build a house because he understood where he was going to spend eternity. He was not lacking in faith. He was not stunted in his understanding of the reality of eternity and yet he mourns and he weeps for his wife and it's recorded in scripture, I believe, so that we would understand that it's okay when we're dealing with the loss of a loved one. Even when you know where they're going, even when you know that they died in fellowship with the Lord. And in fact, this is the first time that weeping or mourning or crying is is mentioned in the Bible. There's no mention of tears when Adam and Eve had to leave the Garden of Eden. There's no mention of tears when Cain murders his brother Abel. It's not recorded anywhere during the flood. God waits all the way to chapter 23 when Abraham has to process the death of his wife. And I think that's just the Lord's way of letting us know that he, he understands. He understands in those situations. Would you write this down? The Lord understands our mourning and weeping over the death of a loved one. He understands. And not only do we have the example of of Abraham, this, this great man of faith, Jesus himself, when he arrives at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus to find Lazarus dead and in a tomb, He didn't just feel the the earthly loss of his friend Lazarus, but he felt the sadness of those he loved who were mourning for the loss of Lazarus as well. And the Bible tells us that Jesus wept. Jesus wept, that beautiful two-word verse that if you were raised in the church, you used as a cop-out when it was memory verse Sunday at least one time if you had any kind of intelligence. And this is Jesus, the, the one who understood The reality of God because he was God. The one who understood eternity better than anyone because he came from it and was returning to it. And yet he didn't shake his head and say, you faithless people, if you really believed the scriptures, you wouldn't be mourning. No, Jesus wept as well because he felt it too. He felt it. In Psalm 56, back in the Old Testament, we see the same heart displayed by God. I put it on your outlines when we read, you number my wanderings, put my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? So this is what the psalmist he's saying. He's saying, God, every time that I feel lost in life, you take note of it. Every time I cry, you take note of it. Every single time I feel grief, you are paying attention to me. And again, we find a God who doesn't dismiss our grief, but takes note of it and and cares deeply about it. And I've shared many times how one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible is Hebrews chapter 4, 15 and 16. I'll read it in a minute because it reminds us that Jesus remembers right now everything 
about the time he spent on the earth as a human being. He remembers all of it. And because he went through that experience of being human, he's able to relate to you and I what it feels like to be sad, what it feels like to be tempted, what grief and anxiety and depression feel like. He knows what it feels like. And and the Bible says that because he's experienced it, he's compassionate toward us when we go through that. It's on your outlines. Hebrews 4 says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, we're allowed to grieve. We're allowed to grieve. We're allowed to mourn the loss of a loved one who also loved the Lord. We're allowed to mourn just not forever and just not the same way that the world does. In 1 Thessalonians, the apostle Paul writes, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, concerning those who have died. And then underline this, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So God will bring with him those who died believing in him. Paul says, I want you to make sure that you understand the reality of things so that you don't mourn like those who have no hope. Because as surely as Jesus died and rose again, Jesus will come for his church, for you and I, and with him will be everyone who has died believing in him. And that hope should change the way that we mourn because we miss them not mourning because the meaning of our life is over or because they're lost. They're not lost. We know exactly where they are and we know exactly who's taking care of them. So write this down. Our grieving should be different than the world's because we have hope. We have hope. And all of that being said, let me state the obvious too. Treasure the loved ones that God has given you. And treasure the time that you have with them because whether we realize it or not, we all tend to assume that they're going to be there tomorrow. And we shouldn't because life is full of surprises and unexpected twists. And so I would just encourage you to not wait on making memories, to not wait on enjoying their company. Don't wait to love them well, to give them your time, to enjoy them as much as you can. Make sure that if you have to say goodbye to them, you'll be crying tears as you look back on all the good times you had with them rather than tears of regret that you didn't make good use of the time that you had with them. Every moment that we have with those we love is a gift from God and they're they're so much more important than your career or your house or your financial portfolio or whatever it might be. Man, treasure the loved ones that God has given you. In verse three, it says, then Abraham stood up from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I'm a foreigner and a visitor among you. Give me property for a burial place among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Underline out of my sight, out of my sight. This is profound. You see, that doesn't mean Abraham wouldn't think about her regularly. It doesn't mean that he was bitter about her death. It means that he didn't want any type of memorial 
or any type of grave for Sarah that he would have to maintain, that he would be tied to because he didn't want his whole life to become about preserving her memory. And if you're having difficulty understanding what I'm talking about, let me try and explain. Also on your outlines, in Hebrews 12, we read this. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The cloud of witnesses mentioned here consists of all those in the faith who have come before us and died. And we're told that they're not up in heaven saying, weep for me, memorialize me, honor my memory by being depressed for at least the next decade. Show the world how much I meant to you by losing all sense of purpose and meaning in your life now that I'm gone. That's not what they're saying. What are they saying? They're saying, look to Jesus. Run your race with endurance. Finish strong. Bury me out of your sight and press on to what the Lord has for you next. It doesn't mean that you forget about them. It means that you recognize that what those loved ones who have gone to be with the Lord most want you to do with your life. Listen to me. Do not miss this. It means that you recognize what those loved ones who have gone to be with the Lord most want want you to do with the rest of your life is live for Jesus and run your race. That's what they want you to do. They want you to do it with everything that you have. That's what they would have you do. Write this down. If those who have gone to be with the Lord could send us one message from heaven, it would be live for Jesus with everything you have. Live for Jesus with everything you have. If you're a believer, then you understand this because if you're a believing parent and you could leave one message for your kids after you died, wouldn't that message be live for Jesus with everything you have and I'll see you soon? Wouldn't that be it? That's what I'd say to my kids. Grieve, weep, mourn, but not like the world. Because we have hope, we have Jesus, and we're all going to be together with him soon. Mourn, but not forever, not forever. Get up and run your race. The Lord has more to do in you, for you, and through you. I said, how do you do that? How do you do that? I really do believe that it starts by understanding that the best way to honor the memory of those we've lost who love the Lord is by living for the Lord. Living for the Lord with everything we have. Understanding that if they could get us one message from heaven, it would be that, live for the Lord. And you do that the way any of us do it. By living in fellowship, by living in Hebron with Jesus day by day, moment to moment. And that's where you discover that what Jesus told his disciples before he left the earth is really true when he said, Peace I leave with you. 
my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Man, miss them. Be grateful for the time you had with them, but don't let it derail your life. Don't let it derail your life. Bury them out of your sight and honor them by living for the Lord, knowing that you'll be with them sooner than you think. I'm just so thankful for the hope that we have in Jesus when it comes to death. You know, it's so good to be a Christian. We don't stop and think about that enough. It's so good to be a Christian. Verse five, and the sons of Heth answered Abraham saying to him, hear us my Lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Underline a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our burial places. None of us will withhold from you his burial place that you may bury your dead. A small yet important and powerful contrast can be brought up here. Lot, Abraham's nephew, sought out political power. He sought out influence and respect and was willing to compromise his values to get it. You'll recall that Lot rose all the way to the position of city councilor, judge, in the city of Sodom. He was sitting in the city gate, which is what that means. And yet when the two angels came to visit the city and the men of the city tried to get into Lot's house to rape them, it was made clear that nobody really respected Lot. And when Lot tried to tell them not to act wickedly, they threatened to rape him too. And then we have Abraham who, who never sought out political power. He simply lived in the land, doing his thing, growing in his relationship with the Lord, doing his best to honor the Lord by the way he lived his life. And yet when Abraham needs something, a place to bury his wife, the people say, you are a mighty prince among us. And they tell him that he can choose whatever to me wants in the whole land. And the respect Abraham gets is real. And the irony here is that the believer who seeks social or political power will usually end up compromising their values and, and losing their way along the way. While the most influential Christians in any culture, any city, any neighborhood will generally be those who did not seek out influence, but simply focused on living for the Lord and along the way became respected by those who were watching how they lived year after year and day after day. Write this down, the most effective way to gain influence and respect is by simply living for the Lord day after day. Simply living for the Lord day after day. The Lord's command to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness extends even to politics and social influence, which is probably why there's so few Christian politicians. Verse seven, then Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land, the sons of Heth, and he spoke with them saying, if it is your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and meet with Ephron, the son of Zoar for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is at the end of his field. Let him give it to me at the full price as property for a burial place among you. Now Ephron dwelt among the sons of Heth and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of the sons of Heth, all who entered at the gate of his city saying, no, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people. I give it to you, bury your dead. Now you need to understand, this is just a, a Bedouin bargaining that's going on here. They're not actually discussing Abraham being given the tomb. It was just the way they opened up negotiations at the time. If you said, thanks, that 
that's great, and left. Things wouldn't go very, very well. Verse 12, then Abraham bowed himself down before the people of the land, and he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, if you will give it, please hear me. I will give you money for the field. Take it from me, and I will bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, saying to him, my Lord, listen to me. The land is worth more than 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? So bury your dead. You can have it, Abraham. I mean, if you're curious, it's worth about 400 shekels, but you can have it. And Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out the silver for Ephron, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, currency of the merchants. Nobody would have expected Abraham to buy it for that price. That just would have been the opening number of negotiations, but Abraham's the wealthiest man on the planet. His wife has just died, and so he really doesn't want to negotiate. He just pays the full price. Verse 17, so the field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field and the cave which was in it, and all the trees that were in the field, which were within all the surrounding borders, were deeded to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth, before all who went in at the gate of his city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, before Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth as property for a burial place. As you know, there are no accidents in the Bible and the names of places and people are often incredibly significant by the Lord's design. And the name Machpelah actually means double door, double door, which is interesting because when you and I leave this life, when we walk through that door, we walk into, in through another door, into eternity and into the presence of the Lord. What does it say in Psalm 23? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You see, Abraham understood that because his wife had died in fellowship with the Lord, because she had died in Hebron, her death meant she was walking through one door and out another, machpelah, into the presence of the Lord. We're going to move on to chapter 24, and I was in a, a really strange spot this week. It could have been a crazy short message, and you're all like, why didn't you do that? Or it would have been a, a, a crazy long one. Don't worry, I didn't do that either. So we're going to read through chapter 24 today. We'll make a few notes. I'll, I'll highlight a few things, and then we'll probably come back to it in our next study and take another look at it. In verse 1 of chapter 24, it says, now Abraham was old. Well advanced in age, he's not a young hundred anymore, he's older than that. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So as Abraham gets old, he becomes increasingly concerned with getting his son Isaac a wife because he knows that countless descendants are gonna come through the line of his son Isaac. And he's thinking, you know, I wanna be alive when he marries his wife to make sure that she's a, a quality lady, a good woman. Verse two, so Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all he had. And, and it's best to view this servant as really Abraham's business partner. This servant is occupying the same role that Joseph would occupy in Potiphar's household. Abraham is essentially the owner of the corporation of Abraham Incorporated, but this servant is the CEO. He's running the business for Abraham. Abraham trusted him implicitly with everything he had. So Abraham goes to him and says, please, Put your hand under my thigh. Yeah, I know that's awkward. And I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son. 
Isaac. So this was an oath-making ritual, even though it sounds weird to us. If you want to make a deal with me, a simple handshake will do, just in case you're wondering. So what's happened now is that Abraham is has moved from the land of Gerar at some point, which was Philistine territory, to a place where the Canaanites are living. And if you know your Bible, then you know that the Canaanites are the worst of the worst, the most wicked, evil, and depraved people practically in the whole Bible who did things on a daily basis that can't really be spoken about in church. They were a people who were so hopelessly wicked that God commanded them to be completely destroyed by the Israelites when they entered into Canaan as the promised land. And Abraham would have seen their wickedness around him and said to his head servant, make me one promise. Go get a wife for my son from my people, where I originally come from, and promise me specifically you won't take a Canaanite woman even if I die. Don't let that happen. He's being a good dad trying to protect his son from a wife that would ruin his life. Verse five, and the servant said to him, perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? But Abraham said to him, beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord God of heaven who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family and who spoke to me and swore to me saying, to your descendants I give this land. He will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. So Abraham's just in the place of faith where he says, uh, listen, I'm not leaving the land that God has given me and neither is my son. God commanded us to be here and to live in this land and so I know that the Lord doesn't want us to disobey him so God is gonna make you successful in finding a wife for my son Isaac that will not involve him leaving this land. Just another good reminder that God will never ask us to go against his word in order to accomplish something that he's called us to do. He will never ask us to violate something else he said in order to accomplish another thing that he said. He'll never ever do that. Verse eight, and if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be released from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed, for all his master's goods were in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he and his camels knelt down outside the city by a well of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. Then he said, and what he really did is he prayed, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, here I stand by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now let it be that the young woman to whom I say, please let down your pitcher that I may drink, and she says, drink, and I will also give your camels a drink. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master." So the servant asks God to give him a specific sign to let him know which woman he should choose as a wife for Isaac. Blessed is the man or woman who understands when they're out of their depth and do not have the discernment or wisdom necessary for the situation. Because if you're a believer, that awareness and humility will drive you to ask the Lord for help. And what does the word say happens when we do that? In James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach and it will be given to him. 
it will be given to him. It's a good thing to know when you're out of your depth in the wisdom category because it'll make you ask the Lord for help and he will help you. So what the servant has done is he's asked God for a sign that would be very unusual because everything we know about camels tells us that they drink a lot and they store an incredible amount of water, which is why they can cover great distances without needing water. But these 10 camels are gonna be at the end of their journey. And so he's gonna say, hey, and would you do me a favor? You know, would you get me some water? And this woman, he's saying, Lord, let her volunteer to get water for my camels, which would have been an insane amount of buckets of water pulled up from this well. Nobody was just gonna do this by coincidence is the idea. Verse 15, and it happened before he had finished speaking that behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her pitcher on her shoulder. Now the young woman was very beautiful to behold, so she passed the eye test. A virgin, no man had known her, and she went down to the well, filled her pitcher, and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, please let me drink a little water from your pitcher. So she said, drink, my lord. Then she quickly let her pitcher down to her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. In other words, everything's checking out here. This is fantastic. And I find it pretty interesting that basically what the servant has said is he's like, Lord, I can pick out a good looking one, but how do I know it's gonna be the good looking one? So God, I'll take care of the eye test and you give me the confirmation about all the stuff that I can't know, which is just really, really good advice if you're single. Because like this servant, you can do the eye test. You don't need the Lord for that. You know who looks good and who doesn't. Where you need the Lord is for all the stuff that you can't see. All the baggage that you don't know about. That's where you need the help of the Lord. And that's what the servant is asking for. So he says, Lord, I'm going to ask somebody that looks really good looking. And then you're going to take care of confirming it. Verse 20. Then she quickly emptied her pitcher into the trough, ran back to the well to draw water, and drew for all his camels. And the man, wondering at her, remained silent so as to know whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. So it was when the camels had finished drinking that the man took a golden nose ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her wrists weighing 10 shekels of gold and said, whose daughter are you? Tell me please, is there room in your father's house for us to lodge? So she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, Milcah's son, whom she bore to Nahor. So that's important because this servant would have realized, oh, that, that's from Abraham's people. She's from even the people group that he asked me to find a wife for his son from. Moreover, she said to him, we have both straw and feed enough and room to lodge. This is just an extra confirmation for the servant. She invites him to come stay with them and his whole entourage as well. Then the man bowed down his head and worshiped the Lord and he said, blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham who has not forsaken his mercy and his truth toward my master. As for me, being on the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. So he humbled himself, he prayed, he asked God for help, and the Lord led him. So the young woman ran and told her mother's household these things. Now Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban, and Laban ran out to the man by the well. So it came to pass when he saw the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrists, and when he heard the words of his sister Rebekah saying, thus the man spoke to me, that he went to the man. And this is our first encounter with a dude named Laban, Rebekah's brother, who's gonna become a player later on in the life of Jacob. And he's always looking to make a deal to enrich himself. And so he sees the jewelry on his sister, 
He hears the story from his sister Rebecca. He sees these visitors from out of town, traveling clearly in style with a lot of wealth. And then you'll notice his response. And there he stood by the camels at the well and he said, come in, O blessed of the Lord. He has no idea if this guy's a believer or not. Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I've prepared the house and a place for the camels. Then the man came to the house and he unloaded the camels and provided straw and feed for the camels and water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Food was set before him to eat, but he, the servant, said, I will not eat until I have told about my errand. And he said, speak on. So he said, I'm Abraham's servant. The Lord has blessed my master greatly and he has become great and he's given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male and female servants and camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old. And to him he has given all that he has. Now my master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land I dwell. But you shall go to my father's house and to my family and take a wife for my son. And I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, The Lord before whom I walk will send his angel with you and prosper your way. And you shall take a wife for my son from my family and from my father's house. You will be clear from this oath when you arrive among my family. For if they will not give her to you, then you will be released from my oath. And this day I came to the well and said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, if you will now prosper the way in which I go, behold, I stand by the well of water and it shall come to pass that when the virgin comes out to draw water and I say to her, please give me a little water from your pitcher to drink. And she says to me, drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed to my master's son. But before I had finished speaking in my heart, there was Rebecca coming out with her pitcher on her shoulder. And she went down to the well and drew water. And I said to her, please let me drink. And she made haste and let her pitcher down from her shoulder and said, drink, and I will give your camels a drink also. So I drank and she gave the camels a drink also. Then I asked her and said, whose daughter are you? And she said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the nose ring on her nose and the bracelets on her wrists. And I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord God of my master Abraham, who had led me in the way of truth to take the daughter of my master's brother for his son. Now if you will deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I might turn to the right hand or the left. So let me know if you're on board with what the Lord is doing. I think God's on the move here. But if you're not on board with it, I gotta go and find a wife for Isaac somewhere else. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, the thing comes from the Lord. We cannot speak to you either bad or good. Here is Rebekah before you. Take her and go and let her be your master's son's wife as the Lord has spoken. And it came to pass when Abraham's servant heard their words that he worshiped the Lord, bowing himself to the earth. Then the servant brought out jewelry of silver, jewelry of gold and clothing and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank and stayed all night. Then they arose in the morning and he said, send me away to my master. But her brother and mother said, let the young woman stay with us a few days, at least 10. After that, she may go. And he said to them, do not hinder me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away so that I may go to my master. So they said, we will call the young woman and ask her personally. Then they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. So clearly Rebecca knew that God was doing something here. This was a culture of arranged marriages, but in this case, she had never even seen the guy that she was about to marry. So she could tell that God was up to something here. 
Verse 59, so they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, our sister, may you become the mother of thousands of ten thousands, and may your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them. It's interesting that whether they do this because the servant had told them about promises Abraham had received from the Lord or not, they repeat to Rebekah some of the same promises that the Lord had given to Abraham, namely that through Isaac he would have countless descendants and would be blessed and protected by God. Then Rebekah and her maids arose and they rode on the camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rebekah and departed. So now we shift back to home base where Isaac and Abraham are waiting. Verse 62, now Isaac came from the way of Beer Lahairoi, for he dwelt in the south. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening. The original word there implies that he was actually lamenting, probably still in the place emotionally of grieving for the loss of his mother, Sarah. And he lifted his eyes and looked, and there the camels were coming. Then Rebekah lifted her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from her camel. This was an expected cultural sign of respect. You would always dismount in the presence of someone who is higher ranking than you. And the original Hebrew word, nafal, that's used there, actually tells us that she took a posture of bowing down before Isaac as she approached. That was, again, culturally appropriate at the time, but will also be important when we look at this through the lens of prophecy. Verse 65, for she had said to her servant, who is this man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, it is my master. So she took a veil and covered herself. Again, cultural practice of the time. The first time that he would see her face would be the wedding night after the wedding and marriage had been made official. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent and he took Rebekah and she became his wife and he loved her. Underline, he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. And so we find there, there's these contrasting chapters in Genesis 23 and 24. Genesis 23 is Abraham processing the death of a spouse, and Genesis 24 is Isaac receiving the comfort of receiving a spouse. In chapter 22, we establish that prophetically speaking, Abraham was a type of God the Father, which meant that Isaac was a type of Jesus, the son. There's prophetic imagery going on here. Even though there's a story that actually happened being documented, it also points to future events. Genesis 22 pointed to Calvary and the cross and what the father and the son would go through there. And that typology now continues again here in chapter 24. So if we keep that going here, who do you think Rebecca is a type of? She's a type of the church, that's right, the bride of Christ, which would mean that the servant who was commissioned to find a bride for Isaac would be a type of what? The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that's right. And isn't it interesting that the servant's name is not mentioned in this chapter? It's not mentioned in this chapter anywhere. Which is even more strange because you can find it out if you go back to chapter 15 where you'll discover that his name is Eliezer, Eliezer, which means to whom God is help, to whom God is help, which is amazing because as you know, four times in the gospel of John, Jesus himself refers to the Holy Spirit as the helper, the helper. 
And in fact, this won't even be the only time in the Old Testament when the Holy Spirit shows up as a type, as an unnamed servant. In the book of Ruth, Boaz, who is a type of Jesus, meets Ruth, who is another type of the church, through an introduction made by an unnamed servant in chapter one, if you read the story. Now why does the Holy Spirit do this? It's because in John 16, 13, Jesus is describing the Holy Spirit and he describes him this way. He says, however, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth for, and then underline this on your outline, he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will tell you things to come. In other words, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is pointing to Jesus. The Holy Spirit is not in the business of pointing to himself and exalting himself. His ministry is pointing to Jesus. That's why he's an unnamed servant in chapter 24. And this servant in chapter 24 we saw gives Rebecca and her family gifts just as the Holy Spirit gives spiritual gifts to the church. Back in Genesis 22, after the whole sacrifice on Mount Moriah is finished, we read in verse 19, so Abraham returned to his young men and they rose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. So this verse after that whole incident mentions Abraham. It mentions the two young men, the two servants who went with them. But who's not mentioned there? Isaac, Isaac which is strange because we know that Isaac was with them. He came down the mountain with Abraham and they they went home. We know that. And yet in the text, by God's design, he's not mentioned. He's out of view. He's removed from the narrative. And the next time we see him is here at the end of chapter 24 when he is united with his bride, Rebecca. Just as after his sacrifice on Calvary, Jesus ascended to heaven where he has remained, hidden, out of view, until it's time for him to be united with his bride, the church. That's when human eyes will see him again. And as we mentioned last week, Rebecca will be a Gentile bride, just as the church is made up primarily of Gentiles, non-Jews. And perhaps most compelling of all, you know, my favorite typology aspect here is that Isaac will not go to his bride, but his bride will be brought to him. Just as the bride of Christ, the church, will be taken to be with Jesus in the rapture. What does Jesus say in John 14? He says, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, also. And there's even more to be revealed here. When you get into the study of the structure of a traditional Jewish wedding and how it all prophetically points to Jesus and his church, it's, it's a fascinating and faith-building study, but rather than take the time to do it today, I'm gonna to point you to a previous Bible study that we've done before where we discussed that in detail. On the church's website in our study of Revelation chapter 19 and the second coming at the URL website address that's on your outlines, you can go and listen to that and I highly recommend you do it this week. 
It's a great study to brush up on if you've done it before. And if you've never done it, you're going to get some insights that will absolutely blow your mind. Well, let me say this in closing. You know, none of us, none of us knows what's around the bend in this life. What's around the next corner. But we do know that the Lord will be there. And that he's faithful. And that he loves us and that he cares for us physically, spiritually, and emotionally. We know he'll be there. And I want to encourage you to not take it for granted that by the grace of God, we understand what life is about. We understand what's really going on. We understand what's on the other side of death. And we understand the, the folly and the waste of living for this life rather than living for eternity. Don't take it for granted that Jesus has opened up your eyes and given you that peace. And that if you're a believer, the the thing that most people fear the most, death, doesn't have to hold any fear for you and I. That's something worth thanking the Lord for. And once you've had the Lord's peace, once you've had him open your eyes, you can't imagine living without it. Can't imagine it. It's so good to be a Christian. It's so good. Treasure the loved ones that God has given you in this life. Treasure the time that you have with them. Don't take them for granted. Don't assume they'll be there tomorrow. And if you're in the place of conflict with one of them, do whatever you can to repair the situation. Repent if you need to. Ask forgiveness if you need to. Don't be stubborn. Don't waste time, they're a gift, and the time that you have with them is a gift. Don't waste it. And if you have loved ones who don't know the Lord, keep praying, keep praying, keep asking the Lord to open their eyes, to open their hearts. Don't give up, don't give up. With that, let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, thank you so much for your grace in revealing to us the reality of all things and for for freeing us from the sting of death and the fear of death. Thank you that for us and for for those we know who love you, that we care about, death is a a double door. It's machpala. It's leaving this life and entering the far better one, eternity with you. Thank you for that hope, Lord. And Father, we pray especially for, for any among us still grieving over the loss of a loved one. Father, I pray that the reality of what your word says, the truth that that loved one is part of that great cloud of witnesses, would just impact our hearts so deeply and in a more real way than ever before that we would understand that their message to us is not grief, it's not lament it's not be depressed but it's live for Jesus live for Jesus with everything that we have and that's the best way that we can honor those who have loved you before us may that be more real than ever before for those of us who who still mourn over lost ones Lord God that we've said goodbye to in this life but have gone to be with you Father, may the comfort of your spirit, the peace that is not like the peace of the world, 
blanket and surround those who are still grieving today, Lord God. And may they be lifted up by your spirit with a renewed sense of, of purpose and hope and energy and passion to live for you today, God. And then, Father, we just pause to thank you for those in our lives who we love, just to say thank you for the good things that you put in our life. Thank you for every moment that we have with those that we love, with children, with spouses, with parents, with grandparents, with, with friends, with brothers and sisters in the church. Thank you for those moments, Lord. May we not take them for granted or assume that they'll be there tomorrow. May we value them and treasure them and enjoy them to the full day by day, Lord. Thank you for your great kindness to us in the form of people that we love, God. Thank you. Just be still before the Lord. And, and this is one of those messages where we each just need the Holy Spirit to illuminate what he wants us to hear from the text today. So would you ask him to do that in your life? Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.